I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back, everybody. It's another edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. Ian Medicine, and Haley Salvian with you to uh, recap the weekend and get you set for the week ahead. Uh, Aaron Portsline uh, is going to talk uh, about a surprising start to the season in Columbus. Cole Sillinger has been impressive. The Jackets, I think, have done better than many people have expected. So Aaron Portsline is going to drop by to chat all things Columbus. It's Hall of Fame induction week, and we'll talk about Jerome McGinley's legacy. Haley has a really cool piece that dropped uh, on the athletic site earlier on Monday, and we'll debate some of the bubble players who are still waiting for their call to the hall. Hey, did John Tortorella have a point when talking about Connor McDavid on ESPN last week? We'll play that clip for you and debate whether or not Torts got it right or wrong, and we'll wrap it up as we always do with a little multiple-choice madness, asking, hey, Who's the most interesting team in the Pacific Division? And whether or not this year's edition of the Arizona Coyotes are going to be the worst team of the salary cap era. But we say hello on this Monday, just down the street. It's the rare opportunity where we're both in the same town at the same time, but we're not doing the podcast in the same room. It's Haley Salvian back in her old stomping grounds in Ottawa. Welcome back. I was a little disappointed. There was no video tribute. Um, there was no flowers. 
Oh, God. Did you expect, did you expect? Oh, God, no, no, no. I didn't expect anything. A little bit. Uh, There was like probably like 1% of you thought that during like the second TV, like what's the worst TV timeout in the game? I'd say second TV timeout of the third period. That's like the one, okay? Yeah. An ISO shot of me in the press box eating candy. Yeah, people have started to leave, and then they're like, yeah. uh, "Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, Haley Salvian." Yeah, you, you, you you're probably because the first TV timeout of that's the game. That's the important one. Like that's, that's the important like, one. Welcome back, Eric Carlson. Yeah, Clark Stone. Every other player. That's your 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 second <laughs> TV timeout of the third period. But you didn't yeah. even get that. You didn't even. And you get know that. what? I didn't expect it. I was. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Was it weird though? Was it weird coming back? Because you talk to players who've been traded to other teams. They're like, oh, it was really weird coming back to the rink that I used to like, kind of roll into every day. Was it weird for you? This was your first time rolling back to the Canadian Tire Center for a game day. You spent, you know, basically the better part of what, a calendar year and a bit? Two, two years. And I was there like for almost, two years, but one hockey season. Yeah, one hockey season, two calendar years. Was it kind of weird rolling back in? Um, you know what? It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, and I don't know if that's because I'm enjoying Calgary so much. Like it was. It was nice. Like uh, you know, even the security guard at the front door. I think he, you know, he recognized us. I guess us both when we walked in because he was just like, "Oh yeah, you guys come on in. Like, don't worry, come on to the media entrance." And the you know the gentleman in the in the service elevator recognized me. Like some of the security people. Like it, those were. Not weird moments. They were just really nice moments of just like, hey, like, how are you? It's nice to see you. They're like, how's Calgary? Um, so it's nice to see people. Um, that's the thing. It wasn't weird. It was just nice to see people. Like, I always, whenever people ask me, like, do you miss Ottawa? How's Calgary? It's like, I really like Calgary. I really like the spot I'm in uh, professionally, personally. Um, the team's great. Organization's great. I love the city. But what you miss the most about Ottawa is just the people. Um, Sens fans are super cool. Like, there was a good media group there, like you and Chris Stevenson and Graham Creecher and uh, Kyle Bukoskis, like all the, just the people, people in the arena. That's what you miss the most. Not so much like the Canadian tire center and, and going, you know, it was, and it was completely locked down too. So it's not like I could have, Oh, here's the old locker room or like, hi DJ Smith, or here's the whatever, you know, there wasn't those moments of like doing the actual job because the job is still so different. So it wasn't like a normal going into the rink for a morning skate. Um, going going downstairs post game into the locker room kind of thing. So I don't know. Wasn't that weird? It was just you nice know what to be though. Back. I got a chance to see Hangry Haley. Hangry Haley came out <laughs> yesterday because you come like, and this is the weird thing for fans who are going to arenas now in the National Hockey League. Most of the stuff when you go to pay, and this happened. I was in Minnesota. I needed to get something to eat, and you got to use your your Visa, your Mastercard, your your bank card, right? Everything is contactless payment, mm-hmm. except the Ottawa Senators media meal. They're still taking cash. So I watched Hangry Haley roll into the arena. She goes into the media room. She's like, okay, I'd like to buy one media meal, please. They're like, that'll be $10. Cash. cash. <laughs> Haley's like, I don't have cash. What is this? 2019. So <laughs> she then goes to say, you know what, Ian, I'm going to go find an ATM. And I'm going to take out some money. Why don't you explain to the listeners what is the ATM situation in the arena in Ottawa? Because it's kind of weird. Yeah, there's no real ATMs. They're fake. 
they're not real. It's a, it's, it's deceiving. It's wrong. <laughs> There'll be the big money sign. Like, you know, you see the little dollar sign on the wall and you're like, ATM, I can eat something. Uh, and you put money in, but you can't take money out. You it's can put a reverse some ATM. You can like put the cash into the machine to put it onto your little digital card to buy something like cashless at the rink, but you can't actually get money to buy food for as a member of the media. So how many people are using this reverse ATM? And again, it is, let's say you go to the game and you got $60 in your pocket of cash, like three $20 bills. You go to the game and then you realize all of the concession stands are taking... Uh, you know, credit card or debit, you're like, oh no, well, I guess I'm going to have to go convert this $60 cash into a card. But who's doing this? Who's putting money into an ATM inside an arena to, uh, anyway, it just seems odd. I just didn't eat. Yeah. It's like, I guess I won't eat. (laughs) That's why Hangry Haley, Hangry Haley was out. uh, Yeah, you never want to see her. No, no. That's why I was so angry about the second cup. I was like, No! Is there a difference between hangry Haley and happy Haley? Yeah. I, I feel like the, the line is actually, like the gap is smaller than you would think. I don't think that's accurate. I, that's just a little bit mean. You know what was mean? <laughs> uh, and just to give our listeners an idea here. So I decided out of the kindness of my heart, I was like, you know what? I'm driving to the rink. Why don't I swing by and pick up Haley on the way, pick her up from her hotel in the west end of the city, and I'll take her to the game. You know, so I pick her up and, and on the way she texted and said, hey, do you think we have time for Starbies? Not Arby's, Starbies, which is Starbucks. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, for sure. I know there's a Starbucks drive through kind of around the corner. So I take her and I have forgotten that this Starbucks okay. has converted into okay. Okay, a okay. different coffee chain, no, which is called Second Cup. Ian, I could see for like the whole block that it's a second cup. Like I'm literally staring okay. at the second cup for but like 500 meters. And I'm like, is he down. taking me to second Let, cup right now? <laughs> and I take her, I take her, okay, listeners, I take her to the drive-thru and she's like, it's a second cup. I'm like, oh no, I forgot. I forgot. They changed it. So I said, but clearly a- not a Starbucks. <laughs> okay. But I said that there's a Starbucks 60 seconds away. Okay. So no sooner do I do a U-turn to go to the Starbucks, Haley's tweeting about it. She's like, oh, I got to tweet about this. I'm like, We're still in the you got to tweet lot. that I wasted 60 seconds of your time. By, and, I, I, and she was just laughing it up and having fun and thinking this was the greatest thing ever. This moron took me to a different coffee shop. Like, <laughs> laughing it up. Oh, it was funny, okay? It was, it's funny because, like, I actually really like Second Cup's coffee. Like, their drip coffee is really good. But I, because I didn't eat, and because I didn't know if the media meal was going to be bad, my, like, my toxic trait when I'm not I didn't eat anything is like, I guess I'll get a latte that'll tide me over for a little bit. And I am lactose intolerant. I like oat milk lattes. And I didn't know if Second Cup had that. Otherwise, if we were just getting a drip coffee, I'm like, oh, Second Cup's great. I was like, no, I need a latte. And I think I'm mildly addicted to the holiday collection from Starbucks. The sugar cookie oat milk latte is so good. And I know your daughter likes it too. So She does. I feel like I relate more to your 
teenage daughter than due to you, but that's fine. Yeah, we're going to bring her on the, the pod one day. We'll, we'll bring her on the pod to, to bridge <laughs> but this But no, gap. I appreciated it. And I thought it was just, I just thought it was funny because it was just like, we're, we're driving into this place and it's so clearly a second cup. It just says second cup. It's the big sign. It's it is not a Starbucks, and you didn't realize. You're like staring, like yeah, here's a Starbucks. Like that is a second cup. Ian, <laughs> maybe it was just very. It was funny to me, yeah. and you, I yeah, I tweeted about it. Like you were literally <laughs> tweeting before I even executed the U-turn to get out of the. The parking lot. Anyway. So there was just something so funny about the way I made it seem like second cup was like, like Sean McKenzie said, like coffee time, you know, like some old, like yeah. terrible coffee shop. Just like, how dare this man pick me up to go to the rink yeah. and take me to a second cup? <laughs> I thought it was really funny. I thought I looked worse in that tweet than you did. I yeah. think it was split. I just looked like it an was. Ass. It was split. You look like you don't understand coffee shops. I look like a brat. Yeah. Pick your battle, I guess. Both both things can be true at the same time. Both things can be true. Let's move on. By the way, yeah, let's move on. And (laughs) we are going to, yeah, we're going to have a a jam-packed show here. And I want to get into your Jerome McGinley stuff too because it's a really cool column that you dropped today. But real quick, uh, you are coming uh, at us from your hotel in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. And now you've got your camera on. Now, obviously, 99.9% of this is going to be audio. And yeah, the odd time we throw out the, the, the video clip on social media. But your bed behind you is made. And I got to ask you this. Because now in the COVID world, this happened to me last week or a couple weeks ago. I was on the road. And they got this new thing. They were like, okay, because of COVID, we won't, we're not going to make up your your bed. And you're not Mm going to come and clean your room. Which I I get. I understand. Yeah. Do you make your bed in a hotel room now that there's no kind of housekeeping service? No. Do you make your bed? No, so, you know, I, <laughs> I'm, i like, getting everything set up. I was packing my bag, so there was, like, a bunch of clothes everywhere because I'm trying – when I travel, I, I, I take everything out and then I repack it all. I don't know why. It's not efficient, but I like to repack everything in my bag before I leave to make sure it's, like, packed in tight and there's, you know, room for stuff, whatever. It's weird. I think I have some little OCD tendencies there. But, <laughs> but with the bed, I was, like – okay, I'm not going to have this like messy bed behind me on screen and I'm making the bed and I'm thinking in my head like, do people make their own beds in their hotel rooms? Like if you're staying at a hotel for a couple days and you don't have housekeeping and you're going out to get something in a city, like do you make your hotel bed or do you just leave it in the whatever lump of blankets that it always is? I was like, I don't know. I'll ask Ian Somebody, the listeners. Well- yeah. This is the ice cube conundrum. It is the ice cream. Do cube. you make the bed or do you just leave it? Because you're just going to jump I in it later. It. I leave it. But, but when you're at home, you make your bed. It really depends. It's like 50-50. Like, I, you sometimes yeah. make the bed. Yeah. For me, it's like, I'm not going to make my bed just to mess it up later <laughs> when I go to bed. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go take a nap in a couple hours anyway, so I'm not going to make the bed. That's that's how I feel about it. Okay, but I'm well, curious listen. to know what people think. Do you make yeah. your hotel bed? Yes. Hit us up on on Twitter with this one. Now, but we did say, hey, this is a hockey podcast, and people are like, "Where's my hockey talk?" It's coming right now. So 
Uh, you did the game last night on Sunday night, Ottawa and Calgary, but you, you you had a story kind of waiting in the hopper, which I think is really cool. So obviously, Hockey Hall of Fame induction ceremonies go, and you know Jerome McGinley is going into the Hall of Fame, and uh, you decided to do a really cool story, which was twenty different kind of anecdotes, interesting tidbits about Jerome McGinley through the eyes of the people who know him the best, like a good circle of friends and and different stories. So how long did this how long did this one take like to start putting together? Did you start a month ago, a couple of weeks ago, longer than that? Like how did this all come together? Yeah, you know what? I it took a long time and it, just for context like in this market here in Calgary, I think and even for outside of the market like I was really struggling. So, I think I started talking about this with an editor in probably probably October after so training camp comes through I'm like okay let's get through September October camp season starts okay we're we're in it and I was like okay Jerome McGinn is getting into the Hockey Hall of Fame in a month what the heck am I supposed to do what is there to say about Jerome McGinley that we don't already know that we didn't talk about when he was a player that we didn't talk about when he retired um when when he had his jersey retirement when he officially got announced into the Hockey Hall of Fame 18 months ago and and then now. So it's just like, what the heck? Like, how do you write the Jerome McGinley story differently? Because at The Athletic, we have a paywall and you want to try to give people value that you can't get for free or that you haven't heard already. And so I was really struggling with that. And I think something that's worked a lot um, for different teams is like untold stories or oral history. So I was like, okay, I'll just start talking to people and see how much I can pull together. And I will give credit, um, Stephen Nesbitt. He he's in Pittsburgh. He's a uh, he's done some really really great features in Pittsburgh. And and he did this format previously. It was just like, you know, twenty stories or sixteen stories, twelve stories about X player. Um, you know who who is the format we were looking at is like who is Jerome McGinley? Here's twenty stories from from people who know him best. And and I was like, that's cool because you can do it in like a really bite-sized way. You can scroll through this 4,200-word story and there's all these little bits and it's really digestible and it's really easy to scroll through and just learn different things about Jerome McGinley through the whole thing. So um, that was this kind of format we ended up choosing. And I talked to probably seven people who either played with Jerome or were friends with Jerome, coached Jerome, GM'd him, et cetera, et cetera. And it took a long time. I, I was working on it for a couple of weeks. Um, just transcribing the interviews was a lot um, because I think you see the stories and you see the quotes you get like, okay, yeah, Jamie McLennan's in this story or Jason Strudwick's in this story like five times. Um, but how long was that interview? Like I, I think I talked to Shane Doan for like, like almost an hour. And trying to transcribe seven interviews that range between 20 to 30 to 45 minutes to an hour, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this was like, it was like, a, it was a monster to get through everything and then to to distill it down to little moments that people hadn't heard before or little moments that people might be interested in. It was a really big process, um, but I'm really happy with it. I think there is some stuff in there that people maybe didn't know about Jerome McGinley, like he is a maniac fantasy baseball manager maniac like I was told you know when the waiver wire opens at midnight on Wednesday night or whatever it's just like again 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 he made the most transactions in their league because his team's bad it's a keeper league and so he's trying really hard to make his team good and he's like trying to make bad trades like 
like Jerome Aginla is the is the typical like oh let me tell you about this prospect that I want to trade you for like the best player on your team like he's really good really really good like he's going into salesman mode and it was little things like that that I thought like these are the stories I want to tell because we we saw the golden assist we saw the shift in 04 we saw how good he was but there's lots of these little things about Jerome that we maybe don't know and I just wanted to kind of approach it that way like here's a little inside baseball peek behind the curtain into a little bit more of who Jerome is while also respecting his privacy because he has been a very private person and I didn't want to like pry back too far and do things that might be uncomfortable and just you know you know what I mean with that like it's always a balance trying to do the behind the scenes story while also respecting the fact that that's a human being with a family and they're a private person um but it was really fun it took to answer your question it took a long time um, but I'm really happy with it and I hope people read it because there's some really cool and, and fun little stories about Jerome and everyone was so gracious with their time. And I think that's really telling about who Jerome McGinley is too. Like Shane Doan's not talking for an hour with a media member about someone he doesn't genuinely really care about and, and want to talk about. Um, all these guys aren't picking up the phone to talk to someone they don't know if, if they don't genuinely love and respect and admire Jerome and, and want to share how great of a person he is. So that's always something that's not lost on me when I'm doing stories like this is people being gracious with their time and how much they must like that person if they're willing to talk to me for for, for an hour. Because that's probably not always fun, as you can attest to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I Listen, I can feel Shane Doan's pain. I spend a, an hour a week talking to you. So. It's not great. <laughs> no. Yeah, but look, I and uh, I encourage everybody to go check out uh, Haley's piece again. Some cool anecdotes about uh, about Jerome McGinley headed to the Hall of Fame, and I, I always remember I was lucky enough to do. Uh, you mentioned Jamie McLennan, uh, and I helped Jamie put his book together. You know, whatever eight or nine years ago, right. uh, kind of looking back, and 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 Jamie's such a good guy. Noodles is such a good guy with great stories, and I remember in that book. Uh, he's got a great anecdote about Jerome McGinley and him and all of his buddies and 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 Jamie was is tight with Jerome and they're all at uh, uh, a hotel in Vegas and they're sitting around the pool and I think they're they're like man this is nuts like the best like and I think this was at like the peak of of Aginla's powers like so kind of oh three oh four oh five like kind of mm-hmm. that window and these guys are sitting around they're like man isn't it crazy like the like arguably one of the best hockey players in the world is sitting here and nobody nobody knows. Uh, you know who he is, and I guess they 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 had some fun with it, and they're like, "Hey, do you think Jerome could put on his own jersey and do a lap of like the 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 pool area, and anybody would notice?" So I guess Jerome had a jersey with him. I think they were there for like some sort of awards or something, and he puts on the jersey and does a lap of the the pool in Vegas. And I think somebody at the very end were like, "Hey, are you Jerome McGinley?" And and but it's just it goes to show you that. There's some great little anecdotes and stories, and and it's great that you got uh, guys like Jason Strudwick and and Jamie McLennan to pull back the curtain a little bit because those are the stories that people like. Every, like you said, everyone knows setting up Crosby for the goal and the fight with Le Cavalier and all the things that made Jerome McGinley great. It's the it's the anecdotes and the little stories, and I and I love the way you actually started that column about uh, you know Calgary making the trade with jo- Joe Nunez. I will argue, I think that's the most fair, even trade in the history of the NHL. Like, I don't think you could ever find a deal 
that you you know usually something is lopsided or at the end of it you're like nah, I don't know this team this is the only trade in hockey history I think I look at it and I'm like you know what both teams won the deal Jer- Jerome McGinley goes to Calgary has a Hall of Fame career and basically spends 13 plus years being the face of the franchise Joe Newendike goes to Dallas helps them win a Stanley Cup they don't win that cup with a Newendike so it's like everything was accomplished it's like one of the rare trades where everything works out for everybody. Yeah, I think so. And I, I put that in the piece too. Like, and, and it was interesting to hear Al Coates talking about it um, because he was kind of the the one who was ta- – like he was in charge of, you know, making that deal. Because there was – I think the, the GM had been fired. The GM before him had been fired and then he's – like there was – it was a lot of stuff that happened in Calgary that year, you know, and – with with Joe Newendike sitting out and they they were they knew he wasn't going to sign it's christmas time and they're like we've got to do something and but they were very specific like they did not want a package they did not want a bunch of stuff for Joe Newendike they wanted one can't miss blue chip prospect they didn't know it was be, going to become a hockey hall of famer and he's like nobody could have known that Jerome had a good junior career nobody could have known what he was going to do in Calgary um so they wanted one blue chip prospect he said there was 13 teams um, interested at first. It got dwindled down to three. And I tried. I was like, who were the other three? Please tell me. And he he was like, I've never disclosed that. I'm not going to do it now. So I was like, ah, I wanted to know who were the other two people they could have gotten in Calgary. But like I said, he wouldn't he wouldn't tell me. But it ended up being like three blue trip, can't miss prospects. And they, they chose the Jerome deal that was on the table with Dallas. And yeah, like – in hindsight, most deals in the NHL have a winner and a loser. This one didn't. Yeah. You know, because Newendike got the cup. Newendike got what he wanted, and Dallas got what they wanted, and he won a Conn Smythe trophy. And yeah, Calgary got a Hockey Hall of Famer face of the franchise and overall great dude. Like, you, it's both teams won, and, and it's, I don't know if, how many deals you can go. I think um, Sean McIndoe did a story about the best win win trades in history. Um, but I don't think there's that many. No, no, not, not. But I always think that that deal should be a little bit of a framework. I know like Vegas traded, or sorry, Buffalo traded Eichel away to Vegas a couple of weeks ago. And what was the thing you always heard? Buffalo wants four first round assets, kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, like they, they, they want. I wish more teams looked at it like the Flames did with, with uh, New and Dyke and said, you know what? Okay, we got a Hall of Famer here, like a frontline star. He wants out. We it's time to move on. Instead of getting three things back and what, what if we just took like give me your best guy who's mm-hmm. nineteen years old? And if that doesn't work, okay, then then great. But then let's move on. But sometimes I wonder if if teams water down the package too much by asking for three or four things. Like, wouldn't you rather just have one? I know there's no such thing as a surefire thing, but I almost feel like I'd rather have the high high end prospect rather than you know mm-hmm. three or four things. Yeah, somebody that you're for sure going to hit on. That's yeah. what you want, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, I got to ask you, as we just uh, wrap up our Hall of Fame conversation, Eric Dehachik uh, has a brand new column that dropped today. As um, you know, uh, Eric used to be, of course, for people who know, uh, part of the Hockey Hall of Fame uh, selection committee back in the day. So he's got tremendous insight into how the process works and, you know, uh, how how everything kind of comes together. And for the second straight year, uh, he kind of put together a shadow committee of, uh, of of athletic writers to say, okay, let's see if we can figure out who's going to, you know, who's on the bubble, 
who we would vote in. And you were part of this process. And in terms of the male hockey players that were voted in, Mm-hmm. This process led you to Alexander Mogilny, who was yep. pretty much a slam dunk. He's yep. in. And then Daniel and Henrik Sedin. The Sedin yep. twins get in. Could you walk our listeners through, Haley, a little bit about the shadow committee? And was it contentious? And, and how did you um, how did everybody get to a place where it was Mogilny and the Sedin twins? Yeah, so the way that it worked is um, there was the the nominees and then we kind of went through the first ballot and if you make it onto the first ballot, I think it was like you need 16 votes to get into the hall out of our 18 person committee. And if you get a certain amount of ballots right away, you, you get in and then there'll be the runaway ballot of people who had gotten, you know, a majority of the vote. So then they'll do a second ballot. So I'll let people know my ballot, who I thought should have been in the Hockey Hall of Fame this year. I voted for both Sedin twins, Alex McGilney and Daniel Alfredson. I think Alf- I think Alfredson should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. People make the Hockey Hall of very good quips. There are so many people in the Hockey Hall of Fame now that I think we can argue it's already the Hockey Hall of very good. Yeah. Can't you say? Like, and there's yeah, so, I think so how many times have we seen the Hall of Fame induction group and been like, how is that guy in? Like, it's already the Hall of Very Good. There's people in there that were very good hockey players a long, long time ago. So to say the very good argument for Daniel Alfredson, it's like, okay, well, look at some of the people who are in who were behind him on the stats. But they won one cup. Like they, anyways, we can talk. We can talk about this more. We're doing the behind the scenes look. Um, but basically, the way it worked this year is that everyone we did our votes, um, and then there was a runaway ballot. So the way that the runaway ballot was is the only people who got enough votes to move on to the second ballot was uh, the Sedins. I think Zetter. No, not even Zetterberg. Uh, it was the uh, Sergey Gonchar. Yeah, it was the Sedins and Sergey Gonchar. And yeah. so the way a runaway ballot works is you can vote for – so if one guy already gets in, then you can vote for up to three. You don't have to. And then because Gonchar made the runaway ballot, I was like, you know what? He should be in the – he's got, he had a great career. And so on the runaway ballot, I just voted for all three. So instead of Alfredson, I voted for Gonchar. Um, Gonchar didn't get enough votes. The Sedins did. So then our Hockey Hall of Fame class included the Sedins and Alex McGilney. And it's interesting because I think there's – that real separation of what qualifies as a Hockey Hall of Famer, I think there's there was a huge argument about Rod Brindmore, led by our Sarah Sivian. I think she was pretty ticked off that he, I think Rod got two votes for the Hockey Hall of Fame. And that was a big one that came out of it, was Rod. Um, he revolutionized what it means to be a pro. He had more points than a lot of these people. He won a Stanley Cup. And what I said in in our group chat, the way we had this discussion, was this is <laughs> a four-person ballot. It's not that Rod Brindamore's not wasn't a great hockey player. It's not that he doesn't have a Hall of Fame case, because you can argue a case for him if you would like to. But are you really going to look at this list of players and say that Rod Brindamore is top four? Is Rod Brindamore better 
then Alex McGilney, Daniel Sedin, Henrik Sedin, Henrik Zetterberg, um, Sergei Gonchar, Theo Fleury, Keith Kachuk, Daniel Alfredson, Vinny LeCavalier, Mike Vernon, Alex McGilney, Steve Larmer. Like, are we going to look at that group and say Rod Brindamore's top four? That's the problem. Or not the yeah. problem, but that's the thing with the Hockey Hall of Fame. It's a four-person ballot. So it's not that he's not great. It's not that he doesn't have a case. It's just, is he top four? And that's, I think, been the argument with Daniel Alfredson is people – I don't think people think Daniel Alfredson was a top four player out of previous classes, obviously, because he's still in the Hall of Fame. And it's going to keep getting harder because Roberto Luongo's up next year. And Yager's going to retire eventually. Datsuk's going to be available eventually. Like the, the pool of players is going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Guys like that are going to keep getting pushed back. And I think with Alfredson, with people like Daniel Alfredson, I think it's the four-person ballot and it's the overvaluation of Stanley Cups for the Hockey Hall of Fame case. This is talking about an individual player and you're dinging them for not having a team one trophy. Like, I think we've seen enough that like one player doesn't win you a Stanley Cup. Like, it's not... It's not like the NBA where if you get LeBron James, you're probably going to have a really good chance to win a championship. Look at Connor McDavid. So I think we overvalue Stanley Cups in the Hockey Hall of Fame process. And I think we see that in stuff like this Um, with Daniel Alfredson. It's the the Hall of Fame, not the Hall of Very Good. He didn't win a cup. Okay, but wasn't Alfredson like – at one point he was in the conversation for – he was a dominant player. He was a very, very good hockey player. Uh, it's weird. I, what's your take on all this, Ian? Like, I know I just rambled for a long time, but I yeah. think the Hockey Hall of Fame is interesting. Like, the way that people view and value players in this context is, it's it, it's it's strange, I think. It's it, a little, I don't know. It is. And, and like, I don't understand why the Sedins would be automatic and not Alfredson, for example, right? Because, uh, you know, Alfredson has more career points, better playoff resume, all that stuff, and yet people are like, "Oh, the Sedins are are slam dunks." I do find it funny. Wouldn't it be hilarious if, oh, like, let's say they they elected Daniel but not Henrik, or vice versa? Like, wouldn't okay. that just be peak awkwardness? Isn't it kind of possible though? Because each person in the yeah. Hall of Fame, you're only allowed to nominate one player. So the, no, it's the I, point that Eric made. It's the point that Dahatchik yeah. made. Brian Burke has to choose one of them. He's the one that made that trade in Vancouver. He's the one that orchestrated the 100%. trade to get both. Who, Brian Burke only gets to nominate one. And what if the 17 other people in that room don't like the other one that much? I don't, I don't see it. Like, I, no, I, you know what? I, I don't see it. Like, I think they both get on the ballot, like kind of in that finalist, uh, yeah. you know, ballot in the same year. And I think they're going to get the exact same number of votes. I think if you vote for Daniel, you vote for Henrik and vice versa. But it would, it would be hilarious if somehow uh, one of them got in uh, mm-hmm. and, 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 and the other guy didn't. Uh, like to me, of all the people that are out, Alexander McGilney should be in. And it's yeah. a crime. Alexander McGilney at his peak was a, a 50 goal. I mean, heck, he had a 76 goal season, multiple fit, like his multiple 50 goal score. He, if you if you want to go down the road of did he win a cup? Yeah, he won a Stanley Cup and was a big part of that New Jersey team in 2000. Like, and I like the fact like Alex McGill, you gotta remember, he came over, he had to defect. He mm-hmm. risked his life 
to come over and play hockey yeah. and then was one of the best damn players for a decade. Like, how is this guy not in? And, like, he was every bit as talented as Sergei Fedorov and, and Pavel Bure, um, mm-hmm. was dominant. Get him in already. Like, honestly, like, I, I, like I, I'd like to make a passionate plea for Daniel Alfredson, but I'd also like to, I'd, I'd make a stronger one for McGillney. I'd make a strong one for Keith Kachuk. Uh, you know, the, these are guys that, that deserve to be in. And yeah. it's, I, I just don't like the fact that this thing is shrouded in secrecy. It's like, you know, when they elect like a new Pope in the Vatican and nobody knows what's going on until you see some plumes of smoke. Like, this is what I feel like the Hockey Hall of Fame is. Like, I don't know what it is. And then all of a sudden somebody randomly makes it in like, mm-hmm. like Rogi Vashon. And I'm like, I guess so. So, and I hate the fact yeah. that we end up tearing down people. I don't want to yes. tear down the Sedins. I don't want to tear down Daniel Alfredson. I want to, I think these, these uh, Rod Brindamore, whoever you think is deserving to be in there needs to be celebrated, but it's, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's an awkward, sticky, weird situation that feels like, oh, it's peak NHL. Like yeah. we're just going to be hidden, shrouded in secrecy. Yeah. And when you look at the people who are on the board, like it's 17 men and Cassie Campbell, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So you wonder why there's a lot of times there's, it's why, you know, people wonder like, you know, two women can get into the Hockey Hall of Fame every year. There are two spots. Yep. A lot of times we just get one and, you know, because what the people in that room can't cough up a second name. Yeah, no, it's there's way more women who should be. There are some women with incredible, incredible careers, not just from Canada and the U.S., who should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. And we just get one per year, typically, because we're arguing over, you know, a guy who played in yeah the eighties. Totally, totally. Hey, listen, you brought up McDavid there uh, earlier. I want to get to something that John Tortorella said. Last week on ESPN, you know, we haven't, I don't believe we've had a podcast on the athletic side uh, since uh, John Tortorella said uh, this about Connor McDavid. But I just want to, you know, point this out. McDavid hit the 600 point plateau uh, on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Sixth fastest player in NHL history to get to that plateau, 600 points. The only ones to beat him there are all the guys who played in the uh, bananas 80s era, right? Mm-hmm. Gretzky, Lemieux. Uh, Peter Stastny, Mike Bossy, and Yari Curry. Those are the only players in the history of the game. Five players who played in a different generation all got to 600 points faster than McDavid, and then Connor is next. So the separation between McDavid and his peers is is unbelievable, but I want people to, to listen to this. This is John Tortorella last week, Thursday night, I believe, talking about how maybe, yeah, hey, listen, it's great McDavid is a statistical anomaly, but maybe he needs to change his game if he wants a little more postseason success. What's the next step, though, to becoming a winning player, a playoff winning player? Because you're not going to get the calls you do in the regular season. He didn't last year, and that was a uh, bit of an issue. Yeah, and he, he complained about it a little bit. He wasn't getting the calls. I, I you know, quite honestly, and I, I hope I say it correctly, just shut up. Yeah. Don't talk about it. I do think he has to change his game a bit. Uh, not not turn into a Checo, obviously. But right. He's talked about culture. He's talked about standard. He's talked about winning. You're you're not going to outscore. You're not just going to fill the net during playoffs and outscore teams. Mm-hmm. You have to play on the other side of the puck. You have to have uh, that business type attitude of you're not. You, nothing's going to bother me, no matter how you how you're going to check me. Don't talk about it. Just play hard. Play through it. But the other side of the puck is that important, too, come playoff time. Mm. I think he's learning. Tip's going to have to get that whole group. If they're talking about a Stanley Cup, 
they're all going to have to play a little bit a different way, not just try to outscore teams. There is motivation because you never want to be the guy that is the best hockey player in the world that didn't win a Stanley Cup. Marcel yeah. Dion, you could sell how you could see how much it affected him when when uh, that was being uh, talked about with yep. him. It's something you don't want. Well, it took Mario a long time. Yep. Sakic a long yep. time. It took Eisenman a long time. Yep. Well, well, so. Just, just, just in the. Just early on here, Ovechkin. I didn't think they were ever going to win in Washington, but Ovi changed his game a bit, and they end up winning a cup. All right, Haley. So that that clip from Tord certainly took social media by storm. Now that everybody's had a chance to listen to it, uh, maybe have a couple of days uh, to to kind of let it marinate. What do you think of John Tortorella saying that Connor McDavid might need to change his game a little bit if he wants to win a Stanley Cup? Yeah, I will say I didn't think the full clip was as bad as it seemed to be on social media. Like when I initially just saw the tweets about this clip, it sounded like Tortorella was like torching McDavid saying he's like terrible and you need to change the way you play or you're never going to be successful. I don't know if that's exactly what he was saying. Like I didn't think the full clip with all the context was as bad. Like he even says like Dave Tippett's going to need to get the whole team, like all those guys to play a little bit differently. And um which is true, like, the, the Oilers have not won anything, so, like, obviously something does need to change there. What I don't like about the clip, and what I'm sure a lot of people didn't like about the clip, is making it seem like it's Connor McDavid's fault, or, like, the problem with the Edmonton Oilers is something that Connor McDavid could change. Because he hasn't been the problem. Like, we know that. Like, we know Connor McDavid's not the problem in Edmonton. Do I think that having a guy, like, it, once the, the playoffs get harder and faster and time and space goes away. And yeah, you can't really outscore your problems in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Um, I do think though, like if there is a team who can outscore their problems, they're showing they can do that in the regular season. This is tough because you say that and then you think like, that's is, hasn't that been the Edmonton Oilers thing the last couple of years is they can outscore their problems in the regular season, they get to the playoffs and they can't do it anymore. And I think that's what John Tortorella was trying to say. Yeah. Is like, look at the body of work that we've seen from the Edmonton Oilers. Look at what they can do in the regular season. And then all of a sudden that goes away. Is the refereeing part of it? Absolutely. Like Connor McDavid didn't draw any penalties in the playoffs last year, even though people were all over him. That cannot happen. That is embarrassing. It's a joke. Like the refereeing in the playoffs is a joke. Time and space goes away, but you can, you should still call a cross check. You should still call a trip and a hook. Um, but do I think that you can't outscore your problems in the playoffs? I Absolutely. Like, we've seen it. You can't. The game gets different. And I think the Oilers as a team will need to adjust to that. Um, but is it on Connor McDavid to be better in the playoffs? No. <laughs> I, like I, That's my problem with the clip is making it seem like it's a Connor McDavid problem. I that's... agree with a lot of what he said, though. Okay, but... Here's what I want to know from you, and, 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 and I'd love to hear from our listeners on this too. Like, and you can always, drop, by the way, you can drop a comment in our uh, comment section there on the podcast page or you know, hit us up on, on Twitter. Do you buy what Tortorella says that you know, Alex Ovechkin changed the way he, he, changed the way he played? And, and I, I ask that, Haley, because in the year that the Capitals won the Stanley Cup, Alex Ovechkin scored 15 goals in the playoffs. He didn't become this, like, lock-it-down guy. They won because he was scoring goals. And the regular season that year, I believe, yeah, he scored 49 goals in the regular season and then 15 in the playoffs. He didn't become this kind of, 
well, two way. Like sometimes I think what I hate is um, we we look to like we look to explain things like like oh you know finally Ovi finally got it. Well, what if just finally there was some luck for Ovechkin? Like the guy was so good for so long, it just wasn't his time. And then he he got the breaks, and now all of a sudden we're like, well, oh, that guy's a winner. But he was always a winner. Like he just didn't have the breaks go his way. And I ask you this too on, on like Steve Eiserman's the other one where people will say, you know, Steve Eiserman used to just be about the points back in the day. And then later on, he, he became responsible. And I'm not disagreeing with that. But the Steve Eiserman that played in the 80s, like the game was so wide open. When Eiserman mm-hmm. won those cups in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was the dead puck era. He was nobody was getting, uh, you know, 150 points unless you were, you know, Lemieux the odd time. But like the game changed. I think sometimes we... We like to say that you know players they they got they changed their the way they play. Sometimes it's just their time and they get lucky. Mm-hmm. I don't think Alex Ovechkin changed the way he played. I don't think Ovechkin is a different guy now. I think he's the same guy. He just happens to have a Stanley Cup. That's all. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had like a, an example, but but I remember, I remember, and you know, plus minus is like a really old stat, but I remember the one year I think he won the rocket. He had like 50 something goals and he was like a, a dash 35. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> like you scored over 50 goals and won the rocket Richard, but you're still a minus 35. Like, I think there was a time when like, I think there, it, what people like Ovechkin wasn't great on the other side of the puck. And I don't think he right. completely overhauled his game but I think he was more defensive, maybe more responsible, or maybe he was just on a different line. Like, I wish I had a better example to use right now. I don't think he overhauled his game, like Tortorella said. Did he play with a coach who had a better defensive structure? Right. Yes. That's the that's the system you're playing within. That's not on Alex Ovechkin. That's on this the system that your coach has implemented that makes the entire team more structured and more responsible. There's more emphasis on puck possession and ozone time, and you're better in transition. Um, you know, F3's coming back, F1's in this spot, you know? Like, that's a systematic thing, I think, more than anything. But it also takes the player buying into that system, and we saw that, and he obviously won a Stanley Cup within that system. So that's where I think with, with Tortorella, what he was saying is, like, Tippett needs to get them into that. You know, yeah. like that's a that's on the players to buy in, but it's on the coach too to to impl- the coach and the assistants, the associates, whatever, to implement implement a system that's going to work for your stars, but also you know not get five goals against. Because yeah, like it's Daryl Sutter was talking about it um, in the preseason. Like he's like we the Calgary Flames cannot outscore their problems. We do. I'm saying we because it's Daryl talking. Like we do not have the elite star power to score as many goals as you need to outscore your problems. Like Daryl said, he's like, we don't have, we don't have elite goal scorers on the Calgary Flames. We can outscore our problems. Nathan McKinnon can outscore his problems. Connor McDavid can outscore his problems. And we see that in the regular season. We don't see that so much in the playoffs. Um, Again, for all those reasons. So is it on Connor McDavid to overhaul his game and be better? Like he's the best player in the world. I think it's I think it's on maybe Connor to buy in to some of those defensive things, um, but it's also on like the coaching staff to implement a system that's going to work in the playoffs. 
And it's on the depth pieces too. It's on the checking line. It's on the defensive matchup line. Like is Connor McDavid going over the boards to match up on the defensive side of the puck? No. <laughs> no. It's not his role. It's on it's a collective thing. Can Connor McDavid be better defensively? Sure. So can Leon Dreisidel. So can the entire Edmonton Oilers. That's not on Connor McDavid. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Haley. Uh, when we were uh, putting our heads together last week and we said, what, you know, what's some compelling stories that need a little bit more coverage here? We, we thought of the Columbus Blue Jackets. We book Aaron Portsline. And then the Jackets go out and lose two games in the meantime. But hey, listen, still off to a great start. We say hello to uh, Aaron Portsline coming at us from the Nationwide Arena. You can hear some pucks in the background. Uh, hey, Aaron, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Well, you bet. And it's great to be with you. Although I, there is, um, I think suspicion is the word, that maybe you have jinxed the, the proceedings here in Columbus. Seven and three, kind of under the radar. And then... The two stars come along and want to show a little spotlight on this thing. And then two tough weekend losses to the Rangers and the Caps. But away she yeah. goes. Good to be with you, though. Yeah. <laughs> but, hey, listen, let, let's talk a little bit about this because I think a lot of people figured, Aaron, uh, in the offseason, ah, Columbus is going to be a bottom five team. Like, lock it in. They're probably going to struggle. So how big of a surprise is this? Off to, a, you know, seven wins already this season and kind of hanging around. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I remember – Thinking, am I uh, am I missing something, or or are other people missing missing something when they look at this? Because, and I get it. There's a perception, and it's not even a perception; it's the reality that so much talent has left Columbus. I think the the wrong perception is that there was nothing left in Columbus; that it was taken down uh, all the way to the wood, as they talk about with the rebuild. It was it was never that. Um, they, they're not tanking they they don't have it in themselves to tank <clears throat> i don't think but it's a better team than than maybe people realize however there are two major roster flaws or question marks coming into the season you wondered big time about center ice it's just there's so many questions at center ice there still are but cole sillinger the 18 year old has stabilized that a bit now. I don't know how how confident you can be as a team when you're stabilizing player in a position as an 18 year old, but he has really helped them immensely down the middle. The other big question was on the right side of the defense. Any team in this league that takes Seth Jones and David Savard out of their mix, going back to the trade deadline last year, that's those are 
that's 45 minutes of the game right there on the right side of your D. So what does that look like? Jake Bean comes in from Carolina. He's never played in that capacity before. He's played a lot of NHL games, but not against top opponents, not on the top pair. Uh, so big question marks. Bean's been pretty good. Sillinger's been pretty darn good. Uh, one of the bright bright stories of, among the young players in this league this year. But there are still some question marks with this team, and you started to see him pop up over the weekend. But I do think they will be competitive. There's a fighting spirit about this team. They do have some players, Voracek, Line, Jenner, uh, Bjorkstrand, Wierenski. This is not a bare-bones operation, but there's some still there's some big question marks on the roster. It's a very young team, and there's a long way to go, as, as I think a lot of people started to see this weekend. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned Seth Jones there, Aaron. I mean, is anybody missing Seth Jones right now? And, and you know, do the fans feel like the Jackets won that trade in hindsight now looking at some of his underlying numbers and just, I mean, the eye test of, of what he's kind of looked like in Chicago. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a great question. I think, I don't think there is vitriol around Jones like there was Bobrovsky, Panarin, and those guys. Um, I think people here recognize the tremendous, really the favor that Jones did by letting them know he wasn't going to sign here a year out. Like that is that just changes things so dramatically. Um, you know what? The fact that they started as they have, I I don't hear a lot of people pining for Seth Jones. But it, I, I also don't want to be that guy because Seth Jones is an, a really really strong two way hockey player. Chicago's off for a rough start, but I think if, even if you talk to people in Chicago, they would not pin that start uh, on Seth Jones. Certainly not solely on Seth Jones. Um, there's been a ripple effect to him not being here for sure, uh, but I, I also think they've moved on pretty quickly. They're excited about Bean. They're excited about Bokefist. They're really excited about Cole Sillinger. He's not here if they don't trade Seth Jones. Um, and they're, they're excited about the, the prospects that are coming uh, as part of that trade as well. So I, I think it's been a really good trade for Columbus, but it's probably a little early in the, in the process to say who won it yet or not. Well, and, and, and I think, Aaron, a lot of it could be dictated by uh, the first overall, first round pick that they get back from Chicago. Uh, could you walk us through how does that work in terms of, uh, obviously, the, the Chicago is really struggling. So all of a sudden, you're looking at a, you know, what could be a high pick. How is that protected from a Chicago perspective? And at what point does Columbus maybe have to take a, a pick in, in, in the following year? Yeah. So, it, so after the lottery... If Chicago has the first or second overall pick, they get to keep it this year. Which I love. I love that Chicago's basically said this is a two-person draft at the top. I like that they also kind of put their cards on the table. We think we're going to be good, but let's hedge our bets a little bit with this. Anyways, if it's the first or the second pick for Chicago, the Blackhawks keep it. If it's the third or higher, the Blue Jackets get it this year. In the event that Chicago keeps their pick this year, the Blue Jackets get their pick in 23 with no lottery protection. So, bedard. And Aaron, you've mentioned Cole Sillinger a couple of times. Uh, here in Calgary, I will say, he was at the top of my draft board that I built for the Flames at the last draft, so I was very ticked off. 
Very ticked off. I mean, Matt Coronado is a great player, and he's been he's been doing really well in college to start the season at Harvard. But uh, Cole Sillinger is in the NHL, and, he, and he's been really impressive. You mentioned him a few times. Just how good has he been? Can you expand on that a bit for us? Yeah. Well, Haley, they should listen to you. <laughs> they should listen to you on the draft floor. Um, so it's interesting because the, the Blue Jackets, they took Kent Johnson – at number five overall, a kid who's tearing up at Michigan right now. And then they settled into just a nerve-wracking experience, hoping that Sillinger would be there at 12. Mm-hmm. And the draft is such a, a strange and odd event. Mm-hmm. They felt like, like this kid, from the moment they drafted him, they had some thought that maybe, just maybe, he would be ready. And that mm-hmm. was more about his physical presence. He's, he's in really good shape. Obviously, he's the son of a former NHL player, so he's grown up around the game. Um, they loved this kid for so many reasons. His skill, for sure, but the way he carries himself, uh, the honest two-way game that he plays. It's rare. In Columbus, Ohio, we've seen a ton of 18-year-olds uh, come into camp, big-time prospects, top 10 picks, what have you. And many of them can really wow you with their skills, uh, sometimes with their skating. The thing that's so special about Sillinger is he can affect the game in the positive. If there is no highlight assist or highlight goal, he wins face-offs. He's a really responsible two-way player. They're playing him on the power play, uh, the top power play. He's been sort of protected a little bit at the start of the season. They had Boone Jenner up top. But everybody's known from the first day of camp, this is the best two-way centerman in in Columbus right now. And so it felt like a matter of time before he moved up. Now he's playing with Jake Voracek. Lining is hurt, so he's got Chinikov on his left, another young guy, 20 years old. But just in the way that this kid handles himself on the ice, off the ice, in interviews... Um, as, and I go back to John Buchagross, the, the great broadcaster with ESPN. When Sillinger was drafted, Buchagross's comment was, it's like he was born to do it. And that's just how it seems. It, it, it just seems, it comes so naturally to him. Um, again, his father being a pro for so long helps, of course. Uh, but this kid is one of those kids that you just look at and marvel that at 18 years old, He's got a grip on things that some guys never quite get a handle on. Uh, he's been very, very impressive. It's uh, Aaron, it's funny you bring up John Butchagross's name because uh, we just played a clip earlier in this podcast uh, with with uh, his conversation with John Tortorella, where Tortorella kind of went at Conor McDavid. And I got to ask you, uh, what's the post-Torts era been like in Columbus? Because I think John Tortorella really kind of had his fingerprints all over that organization for a number of years uh, Brad Larson's in there now. Like, are you noticing? Is there anything different that you're noticing? Hey, in the first fifteen some odd games of the uh, the post torts era in uh, in Columbus. Yeah, I think you could say that John Tortorella still has his fingerprints here. He left a hell of a mark here in Columbus, Ohio. Brad Larson was his assistant uh, for his entire time here. Um, so there are parts of Larson's uh, coaching approach that are absolutely. Uh, from the Tortorella handbook, you would say. Uh, having said that, it is, it's different. It's not, I think you're starting to see guys, you're starting to recognize guys, guys who maybe did need a different voice. 
Um, and then there are other guys who you thought needed a different voice and may really awaken without Tortorella around who just have gone the other direction. Maybe they missed that that voice. Maybe they missed Tortorella. I'm thinking of Jack Roslovic, who's really fallen off the, the map here the first month of the season. Um, Tortorella is, is still kind of present here in the way a lot of these, I think of the way Boone Jenner goes about his work. Um, and that, that's always kind of been Boone, but I think, I think uh, Tortorella left an indelible mark on him for sure. Bjorkstrand for sure. Wierenski. There's this feeling, I think, from a lot of people that the players here couldn't wait for him to go. Uh, I think it was time for him to go. I think he realized it was time for him to go. But it was not a situation here where the players couldn't stand him. It's not a situation where they had grown tired of him. Um, a lot of these guys owe a lot to him, and we'll speak freely about that. Um, but, yeah, there's, it's a bit of a different system. I think there's less, um, I don't want to say walking on eggshells, but I think there's a feeling of it being a little more loose around here. Um, maybe not good cup, bad cup, because I think Larson's tried to continue some of the stuff uh, that Tortorella established. But, uh, yeah, Tortorella is still very present in the in a lot of these guys' career and a lot of the way that they do things around here. Patrick Laine, uh out four to six weeks with an oblique strain. I believe that was the report last week. Um, is that still an accurate timetable? And is he still one of the more intriguing pieces on that roster in, in Columbus right now? He definitely is. Yeah, it's been 10 days since they, that injury. So unless something changes two and a half to four and a half weeks, um, he's had his whole I think he's had a half of Finland in here, but I'm told it's just his family uh, while he's been injured. They were at the game the other night. Um, a big crew of people. Uh, Patrick Laine, and I'm not sure how much of this uh, to to uh, Ian's question about uh, Tortorella moving along. It, it coincides for sure, but is it co- co- coincidental? I'm not. I'm not positive. Laine came to camp in a much better sp- space than he was before, both mentally, I'm told, physically. Um, he has been, I almost fell out of my chair, I think is the way to say it, in the press box during the preseason when Line A skated about 80 feet, 100 feet on a back check. And most people in the press box were looking at each other like, I, I'm not sure I've seen him back check before. That was impressive. Um, he's skating hard. He's using his frame. He's actually playing like the power forward at times that Tortorella uh, pushed him to be last season. Last season was a debacle for so many people. Uh, He was the poster child of that. just did not look like an engaged, impressive NHL player. And got it together this offseason, apparently, because he's been one of their better players. Point-of-game guy. Uh, He's got the big shot, but he's he's been as effective as a passer as he has been shooting the puck. So he's been one of the really bright stories of the early going. I'm sure they're hoping he can keep it going on the other side of his injury. Uh, a, a final one for you here, Aaron. Uh, over the weekend, the Jackets announcing, or late last week announcing, uh, Rick Nash's number 61 is going to be uh, taken up to the rafters uh, at uh, Nationwide Arena uh, in March. And I'm wondering now, what's the legacy for Rick Nash? Because I think when we think about the Jackets, we think of so many star players 
leaving town and, and Nash was arguably the first to, to do it. And I know that when, when star players leave, there's often a, a period of bitterness and, 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 you know, uh, tension between the parties. I, I, I guess it's safe to assume that's all buried and in the past. And this now feels like the closure that, that Rick Nash needs to, uh, to say goodbye. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. He he was the first. Well, he was not the first guy to leave. Adam Foote basically orchestrated his trade out of town when they were five points out of a playoff spot in 07-08. Unconscionable. Uh, why he's uh, Adam Foote's been a bit of a pry in Columbus ever since. Nash was the one that really, really hurt because he was the Mister Everything. Like Mr. Everything here. He's the kid that inspired so many kids to, to pick up hockey. So many young hockey players wanted to be Rick Nash. There are two that play for the Blue Jackets now. Sean Corrali, Jack Rostovic. He was their guy growing up in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and then he, it became public that he had asked for a trade. I think... I think I think a bu- there's a bunch of things that go into this, but when people look back now, there were raw feelings at the time. When people look back now at that team in that state, and you remember it's before they went to the playoffs four years in a row, before they started this run of pretty respectable play. So people didn't have this to, they didn't know this was coming. All they knew is that they thought they were getting somewhere, and here's their best player saying, I'd like to be traded. So there was some anger there. I think the passage of time helps a lot of things. Nash came back to the organization. He would have played here again at the end of his career if his concussion symptoms would have allowed. Um, I think they were close to signing a contract. I think he just came to terms with the fact that for his long-term health, he probably shouldn't play anymore. And so he couldn't come back as a player, and I think that really bothered him because he he is a guy who takes this sort of stuff really personally. And I think the getting booed here, I think that really ate him alive. But the opportunity to come back and work for the organization, he was welcomed back on the ice with his family, kids. The crowd welcomed him back. There are going to be boos. I won't talk those people out of their feelings. Go for it, whatever. But I think that is the vast, vast minority now. I think people understand where he was coming from. I think people appreciate the situation he was in. Certainly they appreciate the work he did for this organization, really putting Columbus on the map um, as much as any one player could. Never won a playoff game here. Did ask to be traded. So are there going to be hard feelings for some people? Sure, sure. But I would suspect on March 5th when his number goes up against Boston. And you're talking about an unbelievable photo opportunity. So you're going to have Boone Jenner taking the ceremonial puck drop. Nash dropping the puck. And I'm guessing the Bruins are going to send Felino up to take that ceremonial puck drop. You'll have the last three Blue Jackets center, or cap, captains taking that face off. That picture is going to be all over basements and and uh, playrooms in Columbus, Ohio for, for time immemorial. I think the, the scene on March 5 is going to be welcoming him back uh, overwhelmingly positive. Well, that's, uh, that's sort of we look forward to that, uh, kind of the, the, the first big date to circle after the, uh, the Olympic break in Columbus. Aaron Portsline, I appreciate you dropping by the podcast. Uh, I think our listeners appreciate not only your insight, but the sounds of the rink 
in the background. It made it feel real authentic. Thanks for this. Totally organic. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, uh, going to wrap up the show. That was a great conversation with Aaron Portsline uh, with the Columbus Blue Jackets. Going to wrap it up, Haley, with a little multiple choice madness. Always love it when the listeners play along here as well, but got three questions to wrap up this Monday edition of the podcast. Here we go. We're talking about Jerome McGinley earlier in the show. Here's my question. Who's the best modern-day player who's never won the Stanley Cup? So I'm looking for, what if we just did guys who have played the majority of their careers in the 2000s, like so since the year 2000. You know, they kind of had the, the, the best part of their career in the 2000s. So who's the best modern-day guy with no cup? Is it A, Jerome McGinley, B, Joe Thornton, or C, Henrik Lundqvist? Haley, who, who's your answer there? Oh, man. I mean, that's tough. Uh, when It's tough. For me, it comes – Joe Thornton was a great player. But for me, it's it comes down to Ginla and Lundqvist because I think, like, Ginla was – for like a three to five year span, like probably the best power forward in the game. If not, like there was an argument for him as the best player in the world. Like from that 2002 where he scored 50 for the first time and ended up losing the heart to Jose Theodore, which is still controversial to this day. It's in the story I wrote. From there to like, you know, he was great that season. Then there was the 04 Cup run. Then there was a lockout the year after. Like there was a span where like, there was a very, very fair argument to be made that Jerome McGinley was the best player in the world. And then I think Henrik Lundqvist, there was like he was one of the best goalies. And, you know, it was it was the kind of I remember the playoffs, it's just like, oh man, you don't want to play the Rangers because Henrik Lundqvist. Like he could steal a series, he could steal a game. So that's a really tough one. But I guess it's just because I just spent weeks and weeks and weeks talking but to people about how great Jerome McGinley is. I'm gonna have to go with Jerome McGinley. I, I think I might go Joe Thornton. And, and I think it's because you look at, like, he's got, a you know, that 05, 06 season. He was so dominant, won a Hart Trophy. Like, I think there was a window there where Joe was the best playmaking center in the game. Like, you know, mm-hmm. three, four, five years where he made people better around him. And I, I think at the end of it, you're going to look at Joe Thornton's career. You're going to see, you know, 15, 16, whatever it is, 15, 1600 points. Like, statistically, this guy is going to go down as one of the all-time greats. And um, I think you can't go wrong with any of them, no. but I'll give my vote to Joe Thornton because I, I I think he, uh, he boy he was so he was so dominant there for uh, for a little window. Okay, next question, Haley. The Arizona Coyotes have one counted one win so far this season. Here's my question: Are they going to be the worst team of the salary cap era, Haley? Are they are the Arizona Coyotes going to be the worst team of the salary cap era? Yes or no? Probably. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm trying to, okay, so, I mean, it's a hard one. I'm trying to think of what, I wish I did the math beforehand. One one win. How many games they played in? 12? They are, yeah, they are uh, 1, 10, <laughs> and 
one, I believe, right? Sorry, oh, no. no, sorry, they're, they're, no, sorry, they've played, sorry, they've played fifteen games and they've won one. Oh no, sorry, they're one thirteen and one. Oh my god! So if you're winning one game every fifteen, yeah, yeah, you're on pace get... for six, basically six wins. I know. Hey, I just did the math. Not gonna win six games, but. But I'm but asking. I'm just uh, like, oh my god, that'd be so bad. Yeah, the, I'm sorry. That the yeah. low bar. The low bar, by the way, it's 48 points. The Avalanche of 2017 finished the mm-hmm. year with 48 points. Are they going to have fewer than 48 points? Do you think they would? I know this is not how multiple choice madness is supposed to go, but now I'm just like, oh my god, they're really bad. Yeah, I know. Maybe because what if they sell whatever they have? <laughs> What if they're sellers at the deadline? Like, what if they have a few pieces that they still sell and they get even worse? I don't see how. I don't. uh, I mean, that's probably a pretty good bet to make that they're going to be the worst. That's really bad. Yeah, I I, I think I agree with you. I I think getting (laughs) to 48 points now seems monumental. Just for the, the, the listener's sake, fewest points ever by a team in the salary cap era, 48. That's Colorado in 2017. Worst goal differential? Buffalo Sabres, when they were trying to tank uh, for Jack Eichel, they had a negative 113 goal differential. So that's pretty bad. Um, so th- these these are all things that unfortunately might be attainable for Arizona. I think I got a new idea for us, Haley, for the podcast. Because we do the Monday show. Mm-hmm. We need to look ahead each week. What's the winnable game for Arizona on the schedule? So I'm going to give you this week, okay? Okay. This week with the Coyotes. They got a Tuesday date against St. Louis, Thursday against Columbus, Saturday against Detroit, Sunday against L.A. So Columbus, St. Louis, Detroit, L.A. Pick your game. Arizona's just... going to win. Which one? Oh. Mm, I mean, Detroit's not an easy out. None of those are e- it's particularly easy. L.A.'s been pretty hot, but they've got some injuries. I don't know. I don't like this game. Um, it's a new game. I don't like it. <laughs> uh, ooh, I'm just going to say L.A. L.A. Okay. They yeah, won yeah. like six in a row, but I'm going to say, you know, I'm not, this isn't me analyzing which one's winnable. I'm just guessing. Like if I had to bet, I, I'm, I'm going to say L.A. I'm going to say Columbus because we just had ports line on and we've probably, we've probably we've uh, probably hexed uh, or done something to to ruin things We're for not Columbus. the Tuesday show. We're not the Tuesday show having Jack Hughes on and then he's out. Yeah, for good like point. Months. Good point. Hey, let me sneak one more question in here to wrap it up. Uh, the Pacific Division to me right now, I didn't think it was going to be a super intriguing division to start the year. It kind of felt like it might be a little bit vanilla, but it's been anything mm-hmm. but. Uh, here's my question. And and listen, feel free if you want to go off the board and if you think Seattle's the answer or San Jose or LA, um, Right now, who's the most interesting team in the Pacific Division? Is it Edmonton, Calgary, Anaheim, Vegas, or Vancouver? Who is it for you? It's Vancouver. I think this offseason, there was so much talk about, look at everything Jim Benning did. He was one of the more active general managers in the NHL during the summer. Um, lots of things made. They, you know, Quinn Hughes and... Lies Pedersen, they're they're holding out, and then they get locked in. You've got the Ekman Larson deal. You've got all these moves that the Vancouver Canucks made to try to be better. And I mean, last night everyone's talking like the Canucks. You know, Twitter is. 
I think the nicest thing I've seen said about the Vancouver Canucks is that they're a disaster right now. <laughs> and yeah. I think what makes them interesting is like, why? How did this roster construction happen? Like the one thing with the Canucks, and I think a lot of people were talking about this, is like their window to really do something when they had the cat flexibility was when they had Hughes and Pedersen on their entry-level contracts. Like when yep. you had two elite players and you had Tanev and you had Markstrom and you have these two really good players on their ELC. So you could have used the money that's going to, that you're saving on having guys on ELC to bring in like good big players for the that pocket of time to make a run for it. Because I think that is always a piece of the recipe to win a cup is if you have really good players on their entry level or like league minimum deals. So you can use that money elsewhere. And they didn't do that. They locked in like older, more expensive players that are still there, not doing a whole lot. Um, And I just think, like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in Vancouver. Um, I think people were talking about, you know, the last time a team got scored on this many times, coach got fired. And I don't know if I blame Travis Green for what's happening in Vancouver. But, like, is Travis Green going to lose his job after getting a contract extension and everyone talking about how great he is? Or is it going to be Jim Benning? Is this a clean house situation? Like, I don't know what's going on in Vancouver, how that roster got constructed that way, and what's going to happen next. But, like I said, I think the nicest thing I saw on Twitter last night after their 5-1 loss to Anaheim was this team's a disaster. I, You know what? I think it's Anaheim for me. I thought Anaheim was going to be this bottom feeding. And they look, they, there's plenty of time for them to, to kind of slide in the standings. There's not a better story than Troy Terry right now. Uh, he's got a four, whatever, 14 game point streak, 11 goals to start the season. Uh, Ryan Getzloff is playing like it's 2010. He's got 16 assists. Like it's, and, and I, I think that um, uh, Mason McTavish and Jamie, uh, Jamie Drysdale. And Trevor Zegris give them this kind of fun element. John Gibson's given them some good goaltending. They're fun. The Anaheim Ducks are worth staying up to watch if you're a, an East Coast person. Um, they're really interesting to me. And, and I, the mm-hmm. longer they hang around, the more interested I am in uh, in the Anaheim Ducks. So I, I I think they would get my vote for uh, for early season uh, kind of compelling team out of that division. All right, l- listen, Haley, we're gonna have to leave it there because you got to jet out of my town. You got to mm-hmm. head to the airport here. Yep. Heading back to Calgary. Yeah. Listen. Back to my dog. Safe travels. I'll send you a second cup gift card. Uh, just to say thanks <laughs> yeah. for stopping by. My co- your next coffee's on me. There you go. Hey, listen, this it was. Honestly, great to see you in person this week. It is uh, you know always a pleasure to do uh, the podcast uh, with you, but certainly great to see you in person. Safe travels, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Thanks, Ian. Alrighty. Uh, thanks everybody for listening to the Athletic Hockey Show. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a rating, a review. We appreciate that. And we want to let you know that uh, uh, annual subscriptions to The Athletic, you can get them for $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show. And you can subscribe to The Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Get all of our bonus content from our entire network. You can start with a 30-day free trial, and then it's just $0.99 cents a month after that.